0: Okay, we're continuing our study of the Book of Church Order of the RPCGA, and we'll just dive right into this without any introduction of what we've studied before review. So first, we looked at deacons, the duties of deacons, the office of deacon. We looked at the definition in Scripture. There are bishops and deacons in Philippians 1:1, 1, 1, and then there is the description of the qualifications for the office of deacon in First Timothy 3. 8 through 13. They assist the elders in the distribution to the poor. They work at the discretion of the elders. It is not an authoritative function in the government of the church, but an assisting or ministerial helping function. We saw the duties consisting of the administration of the sacraments. At times, uh, they can do some things in the regular worship service. They help with administrative things, care of the sick and poor, and work on the congregation to assist with developing generosity. The qualifications of a deacon, virtually identical in the scriptures, and consequently in our book of church order, which we believe should be founded upon the scriptures, uh, virtually identical with that of elders. Then there's a a discussion of the ordination of deacons, um, very similar to what was discussed about the ordination of elders. We also consider Acts 6 as a paradigm for deacons, where the elders ask the men of the congregation to look out from among themselves, to select men that they would set over the specific work, and then they ordain them, the elders do, uh, the elders of the church at Jerusalem. So we see there the very idea of approval by a consent of the people, but also by ordination from the elders. So sections uh, B75 through7, those are very similar to the eldership. The only difference concerns vow nine, which respects governing and preaching for the elders, but the ministrations of a deacon. Um, there's also a section discussing the deacon apprentice. Scripture says in 1 Timothy 3:10 that they are first to be proved and then serve, and also that we are not to ordain presbyteries are not to ordain men suddenly and partake in their sins, 1 Timothy 5.22. So in recognition of those two truths, we have an apprentice program for deacons. And then finally, the licensed deacon, section 9, the various forms of application, the things that are necessary in that application, the status of one who is licensed, and the support that he has from his session, He's examined by the presbytery. His license expires after a year. Um, And then the steps toward ordination for one who's been licensed as a deacon. Any questions about deacons from either of you men? Uh, Nope. All right. And then section B8 concerns church governments in general, Um, specifically the several sorts of assemblies that the New Testament scriptures hold out for us. We see that these governments are instituted by Christ. Uh, We also see that Christ has given gifts to the church, as we see in Ephesians 4, not just the offices, but also particular persons to fill those offices. And then there's a discussion of the fourfold government of the church, that is by sessions, presbyteries, synods, and then general assemblies so there's a discussion there of that and then uh, the powers that are common to these assemblies or we might call these the generic powers of church courts to convene and call before them those under their jurisdiction to hear and determine causes and also to issue censures or corrective action as appropriate to the circumstances next is a discussion in section 9 of Presbyterial Assemblies Um, First, we make the point that in the New Testament, presbyteries are considered a church. This is as distinct from the congregationalist view, that only what we consider a local congregation is a church. That's the idea of congregationalism, and that all powers of church government are vested in the local congregation, usually in some democratic idea that every member or head of household or every individual has a power of government in the church to make decisions about ecclesiastical matters, we don't believe that's the case at all. We believe that that is contrary to scripture, but is a democratic form that many churches have adopted among the Baptists and the Anabaptists. Um, That tends to be very popular. The New England Puritans were also congregationalists. So they believe that every congregation was its own presbytery. We don't believe that. We believe that scripture is pretty clear that you can have multiple congregations under one body of elders and that thing is called a church. It's also called a presbytery. Then we looked at the members of presbyterial assemblies, namely deacons and elders. Uh, Deacons not having the right of government necessarily, uh, but elders having the right of government. We mentioned there the ideal size of a presbytery in terms of number of congregation, a minimum, and then a recommended splitting point where you ought to split off into multiple presbyteries. We looked at how single congregations are under one presbytery, not under multiple presbyteries. So single local congregations then being accountable to a single presbytery. Then um, our Book of Church Order goes into a couple of examples demonstrating that presbyteries are in fact churches and what is it in the New Testament that makes a presbyterian church or a presbyterial church. Uh, Jerusalem, they give the instance, we give the instance of multiple elders, uh, multitudes of disciples in one place. They had multiple congregations where they were meeting. There were even multiple languages that were spoke in the church at Jerusalem. We also had multiple elders, multiple preaching and teaching elders, those who would declare the word of God in the 12 apostles. And yet, for all of that, it is the church at Jerusalem. It's not the churches at Jerusalem. It's one church. It's considered to be one, although it's governed by a multiplicity of elders having tens of thousands of disciples and having multiple congregations with various languages. It's still considered one church. Then the instance of Ephesians uh, or the church at Ephesus. Paul there, three years preaching, tremendous success. Various churches are mentioned, even the the house, the church that met in the house of Priscilla and Aquila is mentioned in the scriptures. Um, and yet, for all of that, it's one church. It's considered to be one church, though governed by a multiplicity of teaching elders, though with thousands of disciples yet still considered one church so a presbytery is a church in fact we consider it to be the root church of the rest and then we discuss mother and mission presbyteries if there is a presbytery or collection of churches that wants to join with us we assign a an authority to a specific presbytery to oversee that that mission presbytery and so there's some discussion of how they can apply to be part of the RPCGA, what the duties are respective of the Mother Presbytery and the Mission Presbytery, uh, the way in which we join and receive together in one government, what the officers have to do, etc. Okay, so for those church governments and presbyterial assemblies, any questions about either of those two?
1: the only question I have um, was as I was reading through it, it seemed like the, the local church um, is a, a church, a local congregation, is a church if it's, if it's like, you know, kind of starting out um, before, and as it grows, it would then split to multiple, where it's still a church but it's multiple congregations, kind of like what you were describing, mm-hmm. but it's even, I think in the book of church, Order described as a presbytery even if it's just one congregation at the same time, if it's sort of like by itself is that, Was I reading that correctly? Or does it not become a church until there's more than one congregation?
0: That's a great question. So our understanding is that the presbytery is the basic church addressed in the New Testament. But that because it's not convenient or possible for all believers to meet in one place for a common worship, therefore there's a necessity that drives it. So ideally it's a presbyterial church, but based off of necessity and scripture circumstance, there can be local congregations that are divisions of that, if that makes sense. So, when it, there is a part where it seems confusing whether it's talking about a local congregation or a presbytery. In the first part, where is that? Um, it puts it in parentheses where it says presbytery. And yeah, I, that's, I think that's what I was thinking. Of. Yeah, that's the one that it confused me at first and then I was able to think about it a bit but the basic idea is that as far as the scripture conception the church is the presbytery but because a presbytery in some region can't always meet together for common worship on a weekly basis therefore we divide (coughs) into local congregations that's how we think of it whereas the congregationalist model is the local church is everything there is nothing above it, beside it Nothing like that, um, mm-hmm. but our understanding is that the basic church is a presbytery. But by necessity, there must be local congregations. Mm-hmm. Does that answer your question yeah. or not? Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I was and I, I was just kind of scrolling back to to the spot where it says um, it is lawful and expedient that there be fixed congregations that a certain company of Christians meet in one assembly presbytery. But uh, the parentheses ordinarily for public worship. Then when believers multiply. To such a number that they cannot conveniently meet in one place. It is lawful and expedient they should be divided. Um, so it's it's a presbytery, regardless. But it's not. But like even when it's in one assembly, it's still a presbytery until it becomes inconvenient for them all to meet in one place, and then it's a presbytery of just the. Um, you know, the, the officers of the church and then the congregation is just the uh, the individual members of the different congregations under under local sessions, I guess. It's sort of like it, it it grows up into multiple congregations out of necessity.
0: Yeah, and we would still consider the people of each congregation to be under or within that one Presbyterial church, mm-hmm. even though for administrative purposes there might be a division of labor with local congregations we would still consider everyone to be part of that one church okay yeah
1: i just i thought that was interesting when i was reading
0: it yeah yeah that is um what is known as the scottish presbyterian model and it's based off of a specific understanding of the new testament scriptures a good book on that is the what is it called the juice divinum i don't know if you anyone's familiar with that but it's the divine right of church government, written by the London Presbytery to the Westminster Assembly, and specifically addressing the uh, Erastians in the Parliament, proving Presbyterian church government from Scripture. Uh, that's, that's an excellent starting place for understanding Presbyterian church government, and that's what's reflected in this, is the exegesis and understanding of Scripture that the uh, root court is the presbytery but with that said let's get then in, into section 10 particular congregations where that's taken from alright so then first we have a definition fixed congregations are caused by the inconvenience of an entire presbytery meeting in one place for worship presbytery then we consider to be the root church uh, voting privileges we understand to be by male heads of households and it's not because we're you know patriarchal meanies but because that is the teaching of Scripture. If you look at the book of Acts, when they're ordaining uh, deacons to assist the eldership, they go to the men of the congregation and they say, look out among yourselves for seven men who have these qualifications. So the idea of voting within the New Testament is limited to the male disciples of the congregation. Um, And so that's voting privileges. And then membership vows. We have... essentially a credible profession of faith here, a gospel profession of faith. First, do you believe that the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, to be the inspired infallible and inerrant word of God having the perfect and only true doctrine of salvation? That's the first question. So establishing a belief in God's revelation as a saving revelation, as an inspired revelation, as an infallible and an inerrant word. Inspired meaning God breathed. It's the oracles of God. It's him speaking. Infallible is unable to deceive. Inerrant, it is without errors at all. Okay, and then second question concerns, do you believe in your own sinfulness? Do you believe in your own depravity? And therefore your faith is not directed to yourself and to Christ, but exclusively to Jesus Christ. So there we're confessing solo Christo and solo Fide. Do you believe in Christ alone by faith alone? And then in the third question, the third vow concerns holiness. Do you promise to submit yourself to the lordship of Christ and by God's grace to lead a holy life, forsake the world, mortify the deeds of the flesh? And then finally, the fourth question concerns submission to lawful church authority and submission to discipline in the case of delinquency in life or in doctrine. Uh, Partition of congregations there, or dividing up of congregations, uh, how the bounds are divided is by location, Um, that's the ordinary course, not that there aren't exceptions to the rule, but the ordinary course, people you live by, you owe them more duties, and therefore there ought to be congregations in that way, and then the officers in section 5, officers of particular congregations, Our, our understanding is a minimum of one teaching elder or preaching elder, and then of course We desire to have multiplicity, so if there can't be one locally, then there would be assessor elders um, who would join in. The care of the poor is the duty of the eldership. Uh, If there is no diaconate, then it falls to the elders to ensure that they're doing that. We see that even in Paul's commission when he was sent to preach the gospel, he was also sent to care for the poor. And that was something that he was encouraged by the brethren in Jerusalem, that he should take care of the poor and he says yes we were we already wanted we already wanted to do that they already saw it as their duty Um, the ordinances in particular congregations talks about this in more detail in the worship part so we'll bypass that for now Uh, the assemblies various assemblies here the session the session can call members and inquire into their knowledge and spiritual state issue an admonition or rebuke if necessary and suspend from the Lord's table. But because we believe that the Presbytery is the root church, we don't believe a session has the right, on its own cognizance, to excommunicate anyone. Um, Now, because they can admit people to the Lord's table, they can also exclude them. The session can They admit and exclude. But as far as the excommunication, or the counting of a person as an unbeliever, we believe that church is a Presbyterial church. Um, And then... The eighth is the requirement for receiving particular congregations and elders into a presbytery. So if you have a church that's either coming from the outside or that is a mission church going to become full uh, status church, there are certain basic requirements. Least monthly sacrament of the Lord's table, uh, meeting weekly for Lord's Day worship, and then a willingness to hear and understand by the people the standards of our confession and catechisms, and a willingness to submit to the government of our church. And then the presbytery on its part agrees to assist by counseling and providing educational materials to that congregation. Um, And then the officers of that church are required to adhere to our standards. And then section 9 there, under particular congregations 10.9, Procedures for receiving new congregations, I'll bypass that for now. Um, Presbytery does some examinations in that case. And then the congregation itself is also asked asked a series of questions um, in the installation service. And then it discusses particular mission congregations, that they're not of full status, uh, but there are many other similar requirements to a full church status. Um, this is often the case if we have people come into our denomination who are not accustomed with our manner of worship or our doctrines, that we have them come in as a mission congregation and try to help them with improving or reforming their worship. We don't think they have to already arrive at whatever understanding we have. We believe that there are people who are on their way in that direction and we're trying to help them in that way. Um, And then for Mission Church in Section 11, Mission Churches to become full-status congregations, it says what exactly they need to do in that case. Section 12 discusses churches entangled with a civil magistrate. By incorporation, they can have a specific associate status with our denomination where we help them, where we minister to them and provide a court of appeals in our presbyteries for whatever their session might say. So it's a way of protecting believers in their interests but because of our specific understanding we do not allow those congregations to be full church status we also have in lieu of incorporation a declaration of association and bylaws Um, if a church needs help with this as they go from associate to full church status we have an office of ecclesiastical counsel. there can be an ad hoc committee from the general assembly to assist with that And then also we have a discussion of when particular congregations desire to withdraw from the presbytery if they have specific biblical and constitutional grounds to do so. Um, And then there is a procedure for people to stay within the RPCGA or ministers to stay or elders to stay in the case of a presbytery, which we'll look at later. But there are means by which they can vote and say in two successive meetings, two-thirds minimum, they have to say, yes, we do want to leave the members of the congregation, in which case they can. And then finally, Section 15, affiliate status. This is for churches considering membership in our denomination, or they desire fellowship. Now, often this is like um, pedo communion churches. They can't become full-status churches. Their ministers can't be ministers in our presbyteries or our general assembly if they adhere to that doctrine. But they may be interested in joining with us in fellowship having some accountability and oversight and working toward correcting those errors so that they can join us in full church status so it's a non-binding relationship but it is a relationship in which we're seeking to minister to churches who don't have a conscientious belief in our standards and that's kind of the idea in that regard okay so any questions about b10 particular congregations I have one. Yes, Casey. Um, So, being that you were saying that we're trying to go for a particular congregation status from the mission status, do we have the director or uh, the declaration of um, in the bylaws? We do have a form that I need to have approved by our moderator. Okay. and then we would present that to the General Assembly and make sure that it's all kosher. Um, but I worked through, yeah, not not in the Jewish sense, in the figurative sense. Um, there will be no slaughtering of animals and dripping okay. of blood. But um, in, in that sense, everything that we did, I approved with Dr. Talbot prior to his decease, and he at that time was the head of the Uh, Office of Ecclesiastical Council, like he's the one with the most, had the most experience and knowledge of these things, and so everything was run through him, so I believe it will be um, acceptable, but you never know, so that is a step, you're right, that needs to take place. All right, then moving on to B11, General Assemblies and Synods, Uh, Section 1 there discusses the authority of synods and General Assembly from the presbyteries of which they are composed, The members of general assembly and synods being pastors, teachers, and governors. Uh, There are national synods or assemblies, and then there are ecumenical or worldwide, oikumenos being the Greek word for the inhabited earth. Section 4 discusses the authority of assemblies. There is a subordination from what we would consider to be the lower courts, the session. Up to the Presbytery and then to the Synod and then to the General Assembly, those being of greater authority as you go up because they oversee a broader array of churches as you go up. Uh, synods also can be regional or national. And then so it could be like a collection of presbyteries, in other words, in a region that could be a synod or a synodical government. And then in section six we talk about moderators of church courts. This is not a biblical office, it's an administrative office that we do for good order to keep things running smoothly and quickly so that we're not wasting people's time. Uh, The moderator only votes in cases of tie votes and the assistant moderator only fills in if needed, if the moderator can't do it and with the consent of the moderator, moderator being appointed by whatever body he's part of. Then we also have what is called a clerk. Again, this is not a biblical office. This is merely for good order. Someone who keeps record of the transactions that occur within a ver whatever various court is meeting. And then he the clerk serves a term appointed by the court itself. Okay, so any questions about B11 General Assemblies and Synods? No. Okay. Then we come next to section C of the Book of Church Order, Directory of Church Worship, pages 59 through 64. In the preface, we have section 1. The reason for this is further reform of the church. In the beginning of the Reformation, there was a doctrinal Reformation, but many of the worship practices that have been inherited from the Middle Ages were not looked at through that lens of Well, we believe the right doctrine, now is our worship correct? Does it match our doctrine? Because often the doctrine was reformed in terms of salvation, but the practice of worship was still will worship or Pelagian worship or semi-Pelagian worship, where it's a combination of the doctrines and commandments of men and the doctrines and commandments of Christ. The pure doctrine of salvation is that God alone saves. The pure doctrine of worship is that Christ alone governs his own worship. So those two are consistent with each other. And at the beginning of the Reformation, especially in the British Isles and other churches, there was a pure doctrinal Reformation without a pure uh, ecclesiastical and worship Reformation. And So this is what we're saying here, is that our understanding of worship is that it's a continuation of the same work of Reformation begun by our ancestors working toward the reformation of the church. And then point two there is just that our directory is not a minutia. It's not a listing out of every single step as the books of worship, uh, let's say of the Church of England, where literally they have sermons printed that their so-called priests are supposed to read word for word, or prayers that they're not to deviate from. They're to say these specific words at this specific time, yada, yada, yada. So we're not our our directory is a directory. It's not an exact set of words. It's more of the basic idea of what we expect in worship. And then section C two, the public worship of God. Uh, one section one discusses previous preparation by the congregation itself. The members coming together to come for worship. They're to join together, not ne- not neglecting the assembling of themselves together for some other private meeting then there is a call to worship and a prayer by the pastor who's presiding over the public worship and ordinances there's the public reading of scripture uh... governing elders may also read scripture as well as the pastor and occasionally students for the ministry or even deacons can publicly read the scripture Although it is recommended that the whole canonical scriptures be read through, that that actually is not a recommendation, that's a requirement, you must read through the whole canonical scripture. The amount that is read in each worship service is at the discretion of the presiding pastor. And if it's deemed necessary by the pastor who governs the worship service, then there will be some exposition given after the reading of the whole chapter. So you must, you must read the whole chapter, And then at the discretion of the presiding pastor, there will be some exposition of it. Also, people in the congregation are encouraged to have Bibles to read them in the reading that's done publicly, as well as to read their Bibles privately by themselves alone. After the scripture and singing of Psalms, there is to be a prayer to prepare the congregation for the preaching. The preaching of the word follows the prayer, and then... Uh, Preaching may also be done occasionally by those licensed to preach who are not yet ordained as ministers. There's a prayer after the sermon, giving thanks to God for all of his mercies, especially the mercies of the gospel in Christ Jesus, and a prayer for the growth of the kingdom of God, the overthrow of anti-Christian tyranny, a prayer for national deliverances from evils, those sorts of things. And then we also have sacraments to be done in public, not in private, by those lawfully called to the gospel ministry. Uh, In the case of an adult who professes faith, they may be baptized. There are specific vows listed for a person who is to be baptized. Then they're, they're to say those vows publicly when they're about to be baptized. They're to receive instruction concerning the sacrament of baptism, to be prayed for, and the words of institution from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, to be read. There is a form of words to be used in baptism that is given there, and then there is the actual act of washing with water with no other ceremony added to it, and then a prayer giving thanks to the Lord for his work in that person's life. Then also in section 7, we discussed the Lord's table um, concerning how often should the Lord's table take place. We have a minimum of monthly, but we don't have anything beyond that. We discuss uh, the exclusion of certain types of people from the Lord's table, the usage of prayer and scripture to prepare the people and their minds for the sacrament, and then an exhortation to walk in a worthy manner uh, after the administration of the elements. A prayer of thanksgiving, and if desirable and thought appropriate, there will be a collection for the poor taken in or around the observance of the Lord's table, as long as it doesn't interfere with any other elements. Okay, and then there is a section on the sanctification of the Lord's day, very valuable section. Of course, this is not our catechism or the confession, so this is just giving general guidance, not particulars like those documents do. Uh, but first, in section one there, it is remembering the, the Sabbath day doesn't just happen on the day itself it also happens in preparation beforehand so that means that people are considered to be responsible to ensure that before the sabbath comes they've done whatever they can whatever's within their power to dispatch all their worldly business and cares so that when the sabbath comes there's no hindrance on the day itself now this is not like making a day of preparation like the jews did They'd have this day you prepare, and then this day is the actual Sabbath. But it's more of recognizing that as far as human wisdom and ingenuity can allow, do as much as you can so that you're not working on the Sabbath. So that's the first principle. And then the the second principle is that those who come to worship God on the Lord's Day should be in prayer for themselves, that they may profit, whether families or individuals or both. They should be praying that they would profit when they come to the ordinances of God. They should also be praying for the pastor, that God would give him wisdom in preaching the word and making application to the people's specific needs, that the times of fellowship would be sweet, that if the Lord's table is to be observed, that it would be done in a way that's glorifying to God, edifying to the people, strengthening in their faith. If a baptism is to be observed, remembering thankfully how God has been working in that person or in their family, and then prayer for the actual substance of that sign to be realized in either case of the sacraments in the lives of those participating. And then it discusses timely meetings for worship, that part of not being encumbered with worldly business is that we make it timely and we're all there, present, before God to hear whatsoever is commanded, to use the words of Cornelius. When Peter came to preach to him, we want to be there, we want to be ready, to receive the word and then people are not to leave the assembly of God's people until the benediction but again section four these are general guidelines they're not rigid requirements where you have to follow every single step exactly as it's printed out in the book of church order but these are the general principles okay any questions about the section on directory of church worship nope okay Directory of Church Discipline, pages 65 through 83. First, D1, the nature and purpose of church discipline. Um, Now, ecclesiastical discipline, we distinguish into two parts. There is the administrative side, and then there is the judicial or corrective side of discipline. Um, What we're talking about here is specifically That which instructs, that which guides, that which promotes purity and the welfare of the congregation of Jesus Christ. Because that's the whole goal, is the edification of the body. So the discipline and government of the church is for the edification of the body of Christ until we all come to the knowledge of the Son of God. Um, Judicial discipline has three purposes. One is to vindicate the honor of Christ. Paul talks about this with the Corinthians. When they repented and disciplined the offender, he says, Yea, what revenge. And that is the vindication of the honor of our Lord Jesus Christ since one of his members who professes to know him has strayed from his ways. That's one thing. And then also, uh, discipline has the goal of promoting the church's purity. Paul talks about this as leaven. When a person is allowed or tolerated in their sin... That means that the rest of the congregation sees that and is tempted, therefore, or given an example of wickedness. This is the same principle of the uh, destruction of monuments to idolatry. Other people see an example of idolatry and they'll follow it themselves and they'll take it a step further. So if people see an example of lenience on fornication, then they'll say to themselves, well, I can go further. That's just human nature. The leaven will spread. And so... In order to promote the purity of the church, we have judicial discipline as well as for the vindication of Christ's honor. And then the third purpose of church discipline is to benefit the person who's offending. The person who's doing the sin is destroying themselves. They're bringing themselves to the brink of ruin. And so the goal of discipline is to cause that person to awaken to their spiritual danger and to come to repentance. Or to use Paul's language that the destruction of the flesh may lead them to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And the destruction of the flesh they're having to do with the person being excluded from the faithful, God can literally strike them with terror in their conscience, cause them to, if they actually are a believer, unbelievers, if they're threatened with damnation, it doesn't mean anything to them. If they're cut off from the communion of Christ, it doesn't mean anything to them because they're unbelievers. Why should they care? But if an actual believer is excluded from the fellowship of God's people, cut out of the body of Christ, that actually means something to them. They take that seriously and their conscience would um, bother them about that. Now, we distinguish judicial discipline from administrative rulings, even if issued by our whole General Assembly or a Presbytery. If there is something that's administratively determined, such as our position papers, those are administratively determined. They're not a judicial case where we rule on a particular thing then those things the people of God ought to consider as pious advice. It is godly. It is from our rulers, but it's advice. It's not authoritative. Um, And then, so we we just distinguish between judicial capacity and non-judicial capacity or administrative. Okay, and then we talk about jurisdiction. All members are subject to church discipline, whether they're Um, communicant or non-communicant members and then we talk about elders when they're to be disciplined they're to be treated impartially Um, if they sin they're not to be shielded from discipline because they've sinned no they're to be judged as well Um, and we ought to ensure that that happens but also make sure that it's not done by one witness for example Paul talks about Receive not an accusation against an elder unless it's by two or three witnesses that every word may be established. So there shouldn't be slight uh, treatment of the offenses of an elder, and oh well, he's an elder, we'll let him go, nor should there be slight acceptance of accusations against them. Okay, D2 discusses the nature and purpose of church discipline, talking about original jurisdiction, the body to which a person belongs. Actually, I think, I think I didn't switch that correctly, Um, jurisdiction within the church should be D2. So strike that where it says on D2, the nature and purpose of church discipline, it should say jurisdiction within the church. So apparently I copied and pasted without changing the name, so that's my mistake. Um, Original jurisdiction, wherever a person's membership lies, if that's in presbytery, as an elder, then that's where they would be tried for any disciplinary case. If a person is considered to be a member of a local congregation, then the session would try at least up to the point of suspension, and then if it needed to go beyond that, it would go to the presbytery, and they would have oversight of that matter. And then the discussion of transfers, um, there must be a notice given to the receiving judicatory. So if somebody goes from one session to another, the session receiving them has to give notice to the sending session or the transferring session. And then Section D3 discusses the session's jurisdiction, what exactly is uh, their jurisdiction. One is to put names on the rolls. So they receive people in by profession of faith or by transfer of membership or by baptism. They put their names on the rolls. Uh, the session, again, may do a, an examination of those who would like to become communicant members, if they're going from baptized to communicant members, there'll be an examination of their faith and knowledge. There's a discussion of uh, presbytery handling charges that must be brought to them by the session. So if there's a judicial case, the session has reached the end of its jurisdiction, they would then pass that on to the presbytery. M- removal of membership, section 2 there, D3.2. Um, if a person is removed in some other way besides excommunication, that would be an act of the presbytery to excommunicate. But in other cases, there can be removal of a name from the rolls in the case of like an erasure. And that happens at the level of the session. Which then brings us to section 3 with regard to erasure. Now there are a lot of scenarios here. Which is very important for elders to know, and also for people to know, um, if someone is not fulfilling their membership vows, and they're doing something out of a rebellious disregard for their vows and for the authority Christ has put over them, and there are certain circumstances fulfilled, they can be erased with censure, meaning they're considered to be unbelievers. We erase them from our roles, and we consider them no longer to be Christian. There are other instances in which a person may be erased without censure. For example, we require our people to transfer their membership. But if you move somewhere and you transfer your membership to an OPC congregation and they say, well, we don't receive from you that denomination, we're not going to hold the member responsible for the action of that session. So they would be erased from our roles without censure. We're not considering them as rebellious or doing some wicked thing. We just recognize that They're no longer under our jurisdiction, but that receiving jurisdiction isn't acting in a a Christian way toward our session in that instance. So we're not going to hold them responsible for that. The same if a parent, if you have a child in your congregation who's a communicant member, their parent won't bring them or their parent moves, we're not going to hold them at fault for something that's beyond their control. So we wouldn't use a censure in that case. We would merely erase them. But if they go to the PCUSA then we would erase them and they say, I want, to, I want to join this you know, rainbow flag church. Well, we would say, that's an apostate church. They don't believe in the word of God. They're in rebellion against it. You must not join that church. And if they continue on that path, then we would erase them with censure because that is a violation of their vows and it's a violation of scripture. So those are the various uh, types of censure that we have. Any questions about the specifics of the Directory for Church Discipline? All right, let's close our time together with prayer.